Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. I understood that world just enough to know there was an opportunity to tell stories. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today is Pat Christensen. Pat was a national champ for Wisconsin back in the 70s. Today, he's the president of Las Vegas events, but more importantly, folks, he's the founder of the Etched in Stone podcast series, an audio documentary series that profiles members of the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Episode one goes live tonight, so please check out Etched in Stone anywhere you listen to podcasts. Episode one is with Mark Chirella. I'm donating Gable the Goat to the Etched in Stone series, and then in January, folks, the Smith documentary will go live as part of the Etched in Stone series. So as I said, please check it out. Etched in Stone goes live tonight with Mark Chirella. It's actually live right now, so check it out. Fan of the Week goes to Nick Cleary. He's a police officer, born and bred in Wisconsin, proud Badger, hailing from Madison, Wisconsin. Check him out on Instagram, Nick underscore Cleary, 5436. Nick, thank you for the support, my friend. We appreciate it. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Let's give it up for Pat, the father of Etched in Stone, Christensen. Pat Christensen, the king of Las Vegas. How you doing, sir? Good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Now, I know we've got, we've got a lot of history that we've had over this summer in terms of this uh, Smith documentary that we're working on and your Etched in Stone series. We're going to hit on all that, but let's start at the very beginning. Oak Creek High School, back in the day, never was a state placer, but ended up wrestling at Wisconsin. Tell me about your journey to Madison. Well, uh, like a lot of your listeners, I was an obsessed high school wrestler. I lived and breathed uh, wrestling. Uh, the my senior year, junior, my, I went to state my sophomore junior year. My sophomore, my senior year, I was twenty-seven and zero, had twenty-one pins, and uh, lost in the semifinal sectional to a to a sophomore. I had literally pinned his brother the year before in the sectional finals so that ended my high school career single elimination back then 
single eliminated. It was a sectional. You had, re, you had regional sectionals, and uh, you, the winner, first and that was actually just first from the sectional. That sectional went to the state tournament. So I didn't go. Had you already planned on wrestling in college at that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was a huge Michigan State fan. I went to their uh, the camps in the summer. Uh, Grady Penninger, Doug Blubow, Terry McCann. I remember all of those guys. Uh, and uh, um, Much like uh, Mark Torello, when I interviewed Mark, he talked about a notebook. I was the same way. I was just obsessed I, uh, with, with everything. Uh, but uh, I wasn't after, after – yeah, not going, even going, I never placed in a state tournament. Uh, in my senior year, I didn't even go. My, fortunately, my wrestling coach reached out to Dwayne Clevin, who was just starting up the wrestling program. He uh, took me, he, this was my recruiting trip. I got on the Badger bus lines at seven in the morning, got there around 8.15 or so. Can't even remember who picked me up uh, at the bus lines. We walked around campus. I remember having lunch at the Brat House. Uh, Russ Hellickson and Dwayne, uh, again, uh, uh, they had me at, at hello. So whatever, whatever they were going to do, I was, I was, uh, I was all in. Uh, but uh, they, what they basically offered me is as to walk on, uh, which I did. And then they, they shipped me back the uh, same day. I think I caught the five o'clock bus back to Milwaukee. Uh, uh, so that was my recruiting trip. You, you hear about the, um, and again, I coached at UNLV, so I got into the uh, recruiting, and you see all of what happens today on recruiting trips. Well, mine was really modest. Uh, so, uh, but no, I, I walked down at Wisconsin, and uh, fortunately, it was about, uh, the timing uh, was uh, perfect. Why do you say that? Well, you, you look at uh, Dwayne uh, Clevin, who, the year before had taken the job and he'd hired Russ Ellickson. Uh, the two of them had just different, completely different visions, probably even unreasonable visions considering where the program was at the time. Uh, I cover a lot of this in Lee Kemp's story. I do, a, I do a, a, in the magazine and storybook, I do a, a, a almost a page on, on Dwayne Clevin and Russ. But, and you look at, uh, he came in that year, they completely changed the culture. Uh, they uh, started scheduling Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. We weren't even wrestling Iowa at the time. We were in the Big Ten and weren't wrestling Iowa. So we went from really a state competitive team to a team that now had everybody in the top five on their uh, wrestling schedule. And the first year wasn't good. But uh, it, uh, if you look back at that history, I got there in 72, uh, Lee Kemp got there in 74, um, Jack Reinwan, Jimmy Haynes were both 72 recruits, uh, and, and I, I, I know neither of them got four rides either. Uh, they probably got more than I did. Jimmy was a state champ, Jack was, I think Jack was a state champ too. Uh, both of those, I don't know if your listeners know about the two of them, Jimmy Haynes ended up uh, winning the NCAA tournament and was on the Olympic 1980 Olympic team. Jack Weinwan won the, the same year I won. Uh, but uh, there was a, after that, you know, with Lee and, uh, you know, there was Ryan, Ron Yaiti in, uh, in that class. Andy Ryan wasn't too far behind. So Dwayne had a string. He took uh, Wisconsin for really uh, obscurity. And in that wrestling room, 
it wasn't uh, there was a guy named Ed Batch, uh, Ed uh, Illinois product, uh, Edison High School. Ed uh, to me was the probably the toughest wrestler I ever wrestled, uh, and uh, in fact, his senior year he beat Chris Campbell in the Big Ten finals wow. and blew out his knee. Uh, history might have changed a little bit uh, if he would have had a chance to uh, wrestle in the uh, uh, in the uh, national tournament that year. So we had a stacked wrestling room. And well, but what happened to me after that loss is I went up to our, you know won our state uh, freestyle tournament, and I qualified for the nationals. And I think it was the second year in Iowa City that they had. It was called the USWF uh, Nationals then. Uh, and I kind of just trained really hard. Uh, I ended, I ended up uh, runner-up in that tournament and lost to Joe Carr in the finals. And there's a whole slew of there's a great storyline of the number of times Joe and I met uh, throughout college. Uh, actually, the the junior and senior year, uh, my junior year, we were in the Midlands. He tied, we wrestled each other, it was a 6-6 ref's decision. He won for consolation. That year, uh, my junior year, Stan Desick, Carl Adams, Larry Zilberberg, uh, Chalice, they're all in the, in the tournament. So the fact that we were third and fourth, who knows how that happened. Uh, my senior year uh, in the Midlands, we tied 6-6 ref's decision. I beat him. Uh, for third, uh, and then uh, and we'll we'll get to the the national tournament later. But anyway, so I, I walked on, uh, and I had a lot of confidence after competing really well at that high school wrestling tournament. So really, I didn't realize that Wisconsin was not even on the map before that time until those coaches got there. Yeah, I tell a story about I think Dwayne had a total budget of eighty five thousand or something. His salary was eleven. They didn't even have the money if you qualified to go to the NCAA tournament to send you. Uh, you had, they had to raise the money. So it was literally worse than obscurity. They were better than sixth in the Big Ten ever before. And there were a couple of years we were ranked uh, second in the country. Uh, and we tied Iowa my junior senior year. We tied Iowa 17-17 both years. One year they caught us at the end one year we caught them so it came from obscurity to a very very competitive team what was your reaction the first time you watched the great lee kemp wrestle in the badger room you know it it's you he wasn't the great lee kemp when he first walked into the bet now he was a highly touted recruit very very talented wrestler uh, but he was lee was one of the most unassuming uh, guys you'd ever meet. Very meek, very quiet, um, very persistent, but very uh, quiet. So uh, I, I always it, it, always enjoyed uh, working out with Lee. And uh, I think that whole, we, you know, we helped us each other a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's to your point when he comes in, he's just a freshman. Um, as we know, in you know his freshman year, he loses in the finals to Chuck Yagla via referee's decision. You had just mentioned you you and Carr had a couple of those. Help us understand. Help us, you know, folks who weren't around back then understand what was a referee's decision. Well, it uh, in that match, I'll, I'll just talk about that match. The 
uh, referee's decision came down to criteria and both of them, uh, so uh, I think they were even on criteria. So it literally came down to, I think at the time was three refs uh, that uh, made up the decision. And the one that the tiebreaker, if you go back and really watch that match and look at it, uh, Lee wins the match. Uh, and uh, why it was called the other way is, again, it's what happens in sports. Uh, things just, it was a judgment call. And I think that's why the rule got changed. But it literally was one ref's, uh, one ref that broke the tie, and that was why Lee lost the match, why he wasn't a four-time NCAA champ. Oh, it, that makes you sick to the stomach to think it come down to that, um, especially yeah. when you feel that it should have gone the other way. Um, yeah. Man. And so that's that whole kind of environment's going on when you were at Wisconsin. Uh, Russ Helixson's a name a lot of people know but maybe don't know a lot about. What made him so effective as a coach? Well, if it weren't for Russ, none of us were, would be where we are. What he did is he, he spent a lot of time in Russia, and he perfected uh, the single leg series. And what he had is a bunch of guys that just bought into it 100%. It, today, you have a lot of individuals that compete when they're, from their, when they're very, very young. They've established their style. Um, we, none of us had anything that would allow us to compete at the level uh, Russ was thinking. So that single leg series where you start with a single, uh, it's either a dump, you either drop them. Uh, if he reacts, if the weight changes, you go to a head outside or you can uh, trip across. Jimmy Haynes, I think Jack Reinwan might have had 250 takedowns that year. Uh, it just, they, we were takedown machines. Uh, so we, um, I think that was our staple then is uh, takedown. We weren't, we wouldn't even try to ride. Uh, it, I was very, I was the most effective on my feet uh, and uh, the least effective on the bottom and, or the top. Almost everything I did came off my feet. And that was all from Russ and his technique? Well, it started with, it started with Russ, but everything went from there. And again, you look at Lee Kemp. I was just watching Lee's match against the Russian from high school. And Lee got taken to his back right away. And he came back, came back. And he beat the Russian, beat him by a point. But he probably shot 15 times to his knees. Lee Kemp hasn't shot 15 times to his knees since then. Uh, so Russ completely changed the way Lee wrestled and that Lee did not, uh, you know, people criticized Lee for being conservative. But what Lee was able to do is completely control the tempo of the match through two things. Never went to his knees. In fact, when they broke, when they changed the rules internationally, it was that and a couple of other things. You know, after 80, uh, Lee just, he lost that edge for a number of reasons. Most of them, he just didn't know what he wanted to do. But they made him drop his head. And uh, that rule alone gave Schultz an edge. Hmm. Now, Schultz was coming on anyway. But uh, you look at his style, you look at Lee's style from, from his freshman year when he entered, uh, started wrestling, everything on his feet, he doesn't go to his knees. Everything is controlled. The other thing Russ did with him was tie-ups. So he completely controlled the match uh, on, it, on his feet. And uh, the rest of us were more aggressive at the, at the single. You know, we, we try to score 15, 20 points off our feet. Lee was okay with four or five points, uh, whatever he needed. But it was Russ Ellickson who instituted that technique. And I think that and uh, Clevin, Dwayne, the combination were – 
you know, the things that they did with our freestyle wrestling program. I think, I don't know if anyone back then that was competing, had the team competing in freestyle year round. Uh, you know, no one did. Now you had individuals, but we had a club. So we went from, these guys went from a budget that literally had nothing, not enough to even start the season to uh, recruiting a, a full wrestling room and creating a, what is now the RTC, creating a, a, a system like that year round. And from what I hear, it wasn't an assumption that every college would wrestle year round. Some colleges, in fact, most probably didn't do that back then. I think individuals did, but as a team, no. And we didn't as a team either, but quite frankly, the best kids did. They were always wrestling freestyle year round and then they're, or they would go back home and they'd wrestle, uh, you know, in that, with the uh, summer programs. But uh, you almost always, we always went to international wrestling, you know, with, what is the U.S. Open? We'd always go to that after the season. And we have a guy like Jimmy Haynes uh, in his uh, uh, senior year. I mean, the, these guys, probably more than me, because I decided not to compete after my senior year. Guys like Haynes, who was on that 80 Olympic team, you know, he, he could have been a medalist. Uh, and it all started with, he was a 95-pound Pound, a 95 pounder state champ from Arcadia, Wisconsin. <laughs> and he barely got big enough his senior year to be a 118 pounder. But wow. he was again, Jack Reinwan, Jimmy Haynes were, uh, were technical machines on their feet. Mm. Man, I had no idea about the, the history of that, that Wisconsin program. Um, and so this, again, you're, this is the environment you're in. Your senior year, you get to nationals unseated. First round, you knock off the number two seed. What do you remember about that one? Well, you know, that's a, that my senior, my, my, uh, I went to the NCAA tournament, uh, my, again, my freshman, sophomore, junior year, mm-hmm. fourth big 10, my freshman year, third, my, uh, sophomore, junior year. I always ran into Larry Zilberberg, my, my junior year and senior year, I always ran into Larry Zilberberg. Uh, I beat Larry once, uh, tied him once in the Midlands, lost on a rest decision. And I think he probably beat me three other times, but my senior year, I had beat everybody in that tournament. I beat Joe Carr. I beat Wagaman. I beat Powell. Uh, I had not wrestled uh, Baleco, who I was the second seed, who I wrestled first, but I wrestled him in the world camp that summer. Uh, and I, uh, I was pretty confident I could beat him. So I was kind of surprised. I had four losses that I didn't get seated. <laughs> Someone, someone told me, you know, I didn't think I'd get seated, you know, maybe a third or fourth seed, but I beat everybody that was in that got seated. I beat the first seed, second seed, third seed, and the fourth seed. What? And was not seated. So it appears like that I was just had a good tournament. And I did. I had, had, a, had a real good tournament because I, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't win as consistent as someone like Kemp did. But my senior year, I was on a tear until I, in fact, I, in fact, I had one loss to Zilberberg in the Midlands uh, going into the Iowa and Iowa State. I ended up losing to Powell and Wagaman in dual meets. Mm. And then I lost to Zilberberg in the semifinals of the Big Ten. So those are my four losses going into the tournament. But I beat everybody else during the year. In fact, I beat Carl Adams that year uh, in the uh, Northern Open. So... Someone told me that Gable got caught. He, it, then the Big Ten, he had a Big Ten representative in the seating meeting. Someone told me that Gable got 
stuck in the elevator. He was our seating guy. And that's why uh, Jack Ryman, who won it that year, I think was seated sixth. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, again, none of that. There's no way I didn't warrant a seed in that tournament. But I'll never forget when uh, Clevin came up to me, our coach, and said, uh, uh, he started to tell everybody about seeds, and he kind of looked at me really gloomy. He goes, you know, you didn't get a seed. I'm like, what? You know, I didn't get a seed? And he goes, I said, who do I have? He said, I, you, you've got Baleco. Uh, and I, I don't want to say this arrogantly, but I said, well, then I've got the second seed because I'm not going to lose to Baleco. <laughs> so, uh, you know that the, the um, so in and that first match when I wrestled him, uh, I took him to his back twice, and he, he screamed or something. The ref stopped it, uh, and finally on the third the third time the ref scored it, and I ended up getting four points, and I just, I, be, I just beat him soundly. So I ended up with the second seed. Um, so the. Uh, but that's how the so the um, and I got to the semifinal match and uh, again wrestling Joe Carr yeah so Joe beats me high school uh, for the uh, national title the in my uh, junior year he beats me in the Midlands I beat him in the Midlands my senior year I go in the the first move again uh, in that semifinal match Joe takes me to my back with the exact same move I took him to his back in the Midlands semifinals. Almost <laughs> like it was almost he did it in spite of me, although he wasn't that kind of guy at all. But I'm like, I'm on my back. He gets four points, takes me down again. I am down 7-2 before I do what even hit me. So uh, we wrestle. We, we're, we're, we are going live. And I think I, I, I had him on he had two stalling calls against him, probably 30 seconds left in the match. All I was trying to do was get him, push him to st get a stall and go into overtime because uh, he was wearing it out. And fortunately, he, I remember his, his uh, brother on the uh, Fletcher was his, the Fletcher car was his brother. Remember on the sidelines saying, Joe, shoot, shoot. Well, he shot. Well, I headlocked him. And as time ran out, I beat him. So that's how my, my uh, match, I, I was telling um, Nate that, that story. He's on the Hall of Fame board with me. Uh, but you couldn't have had, a, and, and that summer in the, in the world camp, I'll never, I've never wrestled anyone in the room. In fact, I wrestled Gable in the room that year. He wasn't as tough as Joe Carr. Uh, Joe was as a physical a wrestler as I'd ever wrestled. So I got into the finals and I beat Wagman. I was confident I could beat Wagman. My toughest match was Joe Carr. What, what made him so tough? He had a physicality. He was like an explosive Lee Kemp. Uh, he, he, he would, that head, wherever you move, that head would get there first. So after workouts, my face felt like uh, I would, I was just, I just washed it with a Brillo pad. Uh, he, he just, and it was not, it's not just his hair, it was his head. He followed you everywhere. And everything was from his feet too. Uh, he didn't, all of our singles, neither of us, I didn't go to my knees. He didn't go to his knees. So you literally tie ups and really physical stuff on your feet. So uh, Joe was as physical a wrestler as I've re ever wrestled. 
So a lot of snatch singles back then with a lot of guys not hitting their knees. Well, they were setup singles. You kind of inside tie ups and yeah, no knees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Did we go to our knees? Yeah. Here or there, but everything started from uh, your feet and the single leg. Uh, the, you know, my senior year, I, I started doing, uh, you know, a, a high crotch here and there, but uh, almost everybody uh, on our team, almost everybody that won on our team was a single, was the start of a single leg. And so what, you know, looking back now, you know, knowing that you battled through those rounds and you didn't get seated, even though you thought you should have, what, what's your fondest memory of that, that national tournament there in 76? Everything. You know, I left, again, I was, I, my goal was just to be an All-American. I, I, I was so depressed after my great start and the losses, the three losses in a row, that I said, I just want to come out of this. My college career was something. I wasn't even an All-American yet. So uh, the, and I, had a, I remember leaving Chicago where we flew out of it and it was cold. The best thing that happened to me was it in Tucson. Why? That's 70 degree weather. Like a new lease on life. Uh, and I just relaxed and focused. And that's, uh, it took one match at a time and focused on the match. And uh, again, I don't, there's not, obviously beating Carr in the semis was, was the highlight. But that whole tournament uh, was just a highlight. And were you guys sucking pretty hard weight back then to get to your weight, or were you feeling not good? Really. No, not, not, I don't think any of us were really were sucking weight. I was a uh, 67-pounder uh, at the beginning of the season. I was, uh, started at 80. Oh. But during the season, I was about 73, 74. So you know, I dropped maybe six, seven pounds. So I didn't uh, – uh, and Jack, uh, Jimmy, or Jack and Lee – yeah, but nothing, nothing, and that's cer certainly not like a Barry Davis or uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, even Rich Lawinger was our first national champ. Uh, uh, he cut, he started at 180, and because he couldn't beat Jared Hubbard from Michigan, he cut to 42. Oh. Now that is cutting weight, and I don't, <laughs> it would be outlawed. He wouldn't, he wouldn't get away with it today. And so how did you end up in Las Vegas? Because for folks who don't know, you're the president of Las Vegas events and had a long career there at UNLV. And we're going to get into some of that. But how did you end up uh, in Vegas from Madison? So my, after my, uh, I, I coached, I didn't go directly into, I, I, I was a PE major. And my, what I always thought is that I would coach uh, high school and eventually college wrestling. Uh, so uh, but my senior year, my fifth year, I graduated in four years, but the fifth year I decided just to be assistant coach, uh, worked out with Lee a lot, uh, worked out with the team, uh, but it didn't even really compete. In fact, I would have won my fourth Northern Open title, was wrestling Charlie Gadsden, but I blew my knee out. Uh, so I, it, was, it was one of those years where if I did compete, I think I'd have been pretty good because... Uh, but I just wasn't that focused. And I was not going to wrestle. I wasn't going to go any further than that. I decided I was not going to go and compete. You look at, you look at that weight class, 163. And I, yeah, okay, I could have envisioned uh, me working, working hard. But imagine trying to get better than Lee Kemp. Or trying to, <laughs> so I saw the writing on the wall in the, in the, in the, uh, the wrestlers and I didn't really my goal was never to be an Olympic champ it was to be an NCAA champ so uh, I, I coached at a high school uh, 
outside of out of Madison uh, Wanakee High School for three years, we did pretty well. My uh, we had one year where we were runner up in the state, had a state champion, had a kid that should have been a state champ. But high school, it wasn't so much the coaching. Uh, being a PE teacher wasn't again. You, you don't know what you're going to want to do. Uh, you know, you think that's what you're going to want to do. Well, that's not what I wanted to do. So I wrote letters to ten warm weathered schools. Uh, the quality of the yeah, I'd hope that I wrote letters to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State because they were uh, warmer than Iowa. And Iowa State, Iowa, and Iowa State. I didn't first of all they had plenty of uh, they didn't need me, uh, but uh, I actually took a trip down to LSU. Uh, Larry Shakatano was the coach then. Uh, I, I loved. I was all ready to go to LSU. Offered me a, like eighty five hundred dollars stipend. Uh, to be a graduate assistant. Two weeks before that, a guy named Dennis Finfrock, who had just started the UNLV wrestling program uh, the year before, he had been recruiting me, but it just didn't, you know, Las Vegas just didn't seem like the right fit. Well, if uh, chance and happenstance, you know, Mark uses that phrase all the time throughout his, uh, in fact, you look at his career, it's, ch it's chance and happenstance. Uh, the a series of moves at UNLV opened a position, an event coordinating position, and Dennis was the assistant AD and the wrestling coach. So he offered me the event coordinating job, but what he said is, "Yeah, that's your job, but really, you're the assistant wrestling coach." So I came on, and the event coordinating job uh, was one in which we played, UNLV played their basketball games at the convention center then, 7,000 seat venue, and their football games at the stadium, which was managed by the convention center. My job was to manage the event, hire the ushers, ticket takers, do the ticket office, parking. Uh, that was my job on game day uh, and throughout the week to get it organized, but I was the assistant wrestling coach. Mark Torella was the head coach at the time. So I joined Mark and we had uh, Billy Rosado who was on the uh, uh, 80 Olympic team, uh, uh, not the 80 Olympic, I think it was the 76 Olympic team. We had Tim Jeffries from ASU, an All-American, Mike uh, Abrams, an uh, All-American from Michigan. So we had a stacked coaching staff. Uh, it just was, we just really couldn't, uh, we really couldn't get UNLV to support it the way it needed to be supported to go to the next level. Hmm. So now I'm, uh, uh, that's why I came out here. I came out here to be the assistant wrestling coach and event coordinator. It's interesting now knowing how, you know, ambitious you've been, how successful in business you've been that I couldn't imagine you as a PE teacher to your point. And was it something where you just didn't really even imagine leaving Wisconsin before that? And kind of looking back now, no, it was easy to leave Wisconsin. It was cold there. You just hated the cold. <laughs> oh, again, I was ready for a change. I just wanted something different. Maybe not been so much Wisconsin. It was just uh, something different. I didn't know what it was. I thought it would be in uh, kinesiology or exercise physiology, quite frankly. I thought I'd kind of follow that path and stay with athletics. But this other, uh, the event coordinating job, uh, when UNLV, uh, they gave Mark a choice to go out and be a full-time fundraiser. Uh, we were really, the university was in bad shape financially. 
and Mark said, listen, guys, uh, if, if, we, if you guys can fund the program, great, I'll coach. But he turned down the, it the other way. So they dropped the program. Unfortunately, Dennis Finfrock became the uh, director of Thomas and Mack Center, which was a new arena, a new 18,000-seat arena that would open up in the fall of 83. So he asked me to come on and be the assistant for, uh, for, the, uh, uh, for that venue. So if you want to look at uh, what I would appreciate is the title of your podcast and how wrestling changed your life. Well, you think about it. If I, the reason Dennis was recruiting me is he watched me win the title in Tucson. Uh, and same thing with Mark. He followed his career. That's why Mark was out there. So without that, I don't end up in Vegas. Uh, and you look at everything that happened since then without wrestling, without the, that chain of events, I'm not, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Wow. That, I mean, to your point, you never know what, you know, what path's going to lead to the next. And, you know, without that move, we wouldn't have this, this awesome series etched in stone that we're, that we're, that you're launching here. And so there's so many pieces that fall into place. The one thing I got to know, though, is when did you start attacking the event coordinator job like you would a wrestling goal versus just doing it because that was the title? Like, when did you really sink your teeth into it? So the event coordinator, not so much because really I was the, brought there to be the assistant wrestling coach. So I focused more on the wrestling. We put together, you know, most of the people that worked, uh, the kids that worked the events were athletes. Uh, and so we, you know, there wasn't a big job and I didn't take that real seriously. Where I started attacking events was when I became the assistant director at Thomas and Mac, because the challenge we had is at the time there were no colleges that were doing events, and the when the reason we got the job is the group that was there before us, the uh, the staff that was there before us, really was the group that got it funded, but it was funded as a fifteen thousand seat venue. At some point, they took it to 18,000, but they never got the funding for the other 3,000 seats. And what they did is worked with the architect through that time to cut out all these other things. They cut out the paving in the parking lot. There was no, when we walked into that building uh, six months before it was open, there was no, uh, there was no concession stands. They were plumb for elect, they were literally cement, they looked like your garage. The concourse looked like your garage. The suites were plumb for electrical and water, nothing else. The, uh, the uh, concession stands, nothing in them. Restrooms, just the urinals, no fixed fixtures. Uh, and that's how they got it uh, under budget. So that group got let go. And Dennis convinced him, without any venue experience at all, that's, Dennis is a whole other story, uh, that he could do it that he could figure it out. And what he did is said, listen, I, we, you guys have to let us do events. Uh, colleges weren't, you know, colleges were, were um, the venues were palaces then. You know, you, it was one thing. You did basketball there. You didn't even do hockey. So that was a unique difference. And that is where, I, if there was an opportunity for me, that was one that I, I attacked probably more seriously than I did wrestling in that uh, really had to learn a lot about administration had to learn about management, leadership, uh, marketing. Uh, so that was my responsibility. I had to book events, had to market the events. I was running the front of house. Uh, so 
that is where I, I got the bug much like I did wrestling. Well, and for people who don't know, you know, you guys were doing 175 events a year. Every major, you know, college sporting event certainly was there. And then also you were doing the football stadium, which is now Sam Boyd Stadium. Um, and so really this was like a business. You guys just got to run and it's, it's you and the, the gentleman you're talking about. And, and next thing you know, it's, it's, a, it's really a well-oiled machine. And, and then now you're the president of Las Vegas events. So, I mean, what, what a career it's been, just like you said, from 83 to now, and you're still running Las Vegas events. Um, is that right? Yeah. So in 2001, I left, uh, I got offered the position at Las Vegas events. Um, so I, I went from uh, managing the Thomas and Mack, the stadium, and we built the Cox Pavilion to uh, Las Vegas events. Uh, the Las Vegas events is a private nonprofit group uh, whose board is the movers and shakers, uh, mostly from the hotel industry. Uh, but the job is to secure events for Las Vegas. Uh, so that's where I went from running a venue to Las Vegas events. Uh, and, you know, the National Finals Rodeo is our biggest event. We produce the National Finals Rodeo. But uh, you know, we've done the, we've secured the NBA Summer League. Uh, we have uh, the biggest music festival in the country, EDC. It's over 400,000 kids. Uh, Life is beautiful. Uh, so we do about 40 events uh, or have secured 40 events a year that are still here, Rock and Roll Marathon on the Strip. That is really what we do is we, uh, our group, we have 15 employees, produce the NFR, uh, we produce the World Cup jumping dressage, but for the most part, we're bringing events to the destination. And, you know, I'm a big fight fan, Pat. You're living in Las Vegas all these years. Have, have you ever been to a, a big boxing match or a big UFC event out there in Vegas? So when I got here in 80, Dennis also had a company called Finco. And what he would do is hire all the football players and athletes to be the ushers at the fights. So not only have I been to a fight, I've been to every fight. I mean, Hagler, <laughs> Leonard, Hearns. Oh! Uh, uh, and uh, what we would do is you get the whole fight. Not only was I at the fight, I was ringside. I mean, that's what we do. So from mm -hmm. even the events in the pavilion uh, where these guys were cutting their teeth, you know, the Hearns and Leonard, they'd all start in the, there's a 3,000, 4,000 seat venue. Uh, in fact, Mark talks in uh, his podcast about the Las Vegas Invitational made a home at Caesars for one year, was on ESPN and everything in that same venue. But no, I would, pro I would say I've, I've seen 40, 50 fights. Uh, uh, it, one of the things that uh, you, get, you get accustomed to when you're in the business, and then it was more the fights, really wasn't so, so much music or other events. Uh, but the but uh, fights for sure in the 80s and 90s. In fact, at Thomas and Mack, we did uh, probably a dozen, 15 fights while I was there. We did Bow and Holyfield, mm. uh, uh, Chavez, Camacho. Uh, uh, we did uh, uh, George Foreman a couple times. So, yeah, fights were a big part of uh, what I've done. But no, literally, we were. Uh, uh, we, these usher would be, would be great. Is not only that you would you would take the people to their seats, and you would brush off the seat. The ushers. This is how they'd make their. They would get tips. They'd walk home with fifty to hundred bucks in their pockets uh, from tips. I got one story. I saw. I went to high school 
with John Matusik. Do you know that name? Uh-uh. John Matusik uh, played uh, defensive end for the Oakland Raiders. If you Google that name, he was a character. Uh, 268, 280. Well, he went to my high school. I knew John in high school. And I, a couple of times in the summer, I'd be up weightlifting in the, high, in the gym with him. Well, uh, at uh, one of the fights, he had, uh, is it really, I can't remember which fight it was, just packed. And he's got Jack Linkless with him. So they can't get through. And I'm just watching this. And they both got these buckets of beers, like a 32-ounce beers. So he gives the uh, beers to Jack, and he hoists them on his shoulder, and he walks them to his seat. So <laughs> there, were, there were so many uh, stories uh, that, uh, uh, from that time. But there's, again, all the, like today, you got all the celebrities at the, at the fights. Yeah. I mean, that Hagler-Hearns fight is my all-time favorite fight. Uh, the I mean, best two, three rounds. I can never remember if it's two or three rounds, but and that era was awesome for boxing. Uh, Leonard, obviously, Duran was in there. Um, so, I mean, when you're doing this, are you totally living kind of a nightlife lifestyle? And no. No? Yeah, again, no, what's interesting is that people have that perception. We all live in hotel rooms. <laughs> but uh, when you look at running a venue, if anything uh, – I was uh, yeah, I probably at work till one or two in the morning, hundred times a, a year because our events, you, you do the event, you finish it, you settle the event and you're mm-hmm. settling all of the money. So uh, not a glamorous life at all. What, what I really enjoyed about that, the first year we did 24 concerts at Thomas and Mac, uh, the I mean, Van Halen, Rush, uh, Lionel Richie, uh, Kenny and Dolly, Willie and Waylon, you you name it, we were doing them. So it wasn't so much the thrill of getting to see them. You know, I'm a big live music fan. Uh, but it was that you were responsible for doing that event. Uh, every one of those was, uh, every one of those events was really satisfying. It was, it was fun, not only to do the event, but to generate the kind of money we were generating for the university, uh, which was uh, by, I think, the fifth year, we finished the venue, finished the, the concourse, finished the concession stands. We sold all the suites, but you had to finish the suite yourself. So if you, you bought that suite, you literally bought, it would be like buying an empty lot and having to build your house. Uh, and paved the lot, so we finished that. By my, the year I left, there were, uh, actually the year I took the job, like five years, we literally had four or five million dollars in the bank on top of the improvements. So those 175 events, especially the national finals rodeo and the money it generated for the venue really uh, uh, were critical uh, to its success. Who would ever think that a college, one of their revenue streams is doing concerts at their events. That seems like a no brainer now, but very innovative at the time. No, again, it was out of absolute, it it would never have happened. The university never would have allowed it, except they were looking, they had nowhere to turn. Just dire straits. The state wasn't going to give them any money. They didn't have money. We started with six employees. They didn't have money to pay us. We had to generate (laughs) that money. So talk about motivation. If you don't do an event, you don't get paid. Uh, And we were all on interim contracts. They didn't believe we could do it. I was, we were two wrestling guys. (laughs) <laughs> we, we were probably the two most second guest people in the city at the time. <laughs> wow. What but, a, but it painted it, it, it for the university. They stayed off our backs for good after those first two years, because 
they could not afford not to. They didn't have anywhere to turn to generate the dollars to uh, complete the venue or even operate. That's the beauty of being in a sales-related business. If you're bringing in the cash, they usually leave you alone. Uh, again, we, it got real quiet. Yeah. Now, you know, as you've, you know, you have that career going on, but also you're starting this Etched in Stone series. So we'll pivot from the events. Tell us what the Etched in Stone series is and how this came about, Pat. Well, I was asked to be on the National Wrestling Hall of Fame board uh, a year and a half ago now. And it was really the first time I had gone to the Hall of Fame. Uh, so the, at the first board meeting, I did a walk through the, uh, the hall and I was just blown away. It was the stories and the history. And you go from place to place and you think about it. And it just kind of, it, it was bringing me back to all these days and all these stories that I'd heard before. And um, I had... Uh, I'd written my own book uh, uh, on live music, uh, Rock Vegas. So I kind of had an idea of storytelling. And we had started a podcast at Las Vegas events for the um, NFR. It's called NFR Extra. So I was, I was, I understood that world just enough to know there was an opportunity to tell stories. And so I approached the board about a concept that would similar to the very same thing you're doing. Uh, it's funny how we were congruently doing the same thing. It is. Uh, the, uh, so, but the concept would be twofold. One, to tell these stories more concisely, um, it, uh, they, not just to interview someone, but to go to take a deeper dive and interview all of the people in their lives around them and tell their story very, uh, very concisely, yet in a way that um, you know fans would enjoy the the stories. If you look back, I, I remember I was at dinner with uh, Rich Bender, head of USA Wrestling, Stan Desik, and I asked him, "What's the last wrestling book you've read? You know, what's the uh, what book?" You know, kind of gave me a blank stare. Well, the problem, and this isn't just wrestling, it's, it's the, our culture. It is too expensive. If you're going to do a video, uh, a documentary that's going to get on Netflix or anywhere, you're looking at a quarter million dollars to a million. Mm -hmm. uh, so the time consumption, consum the investment, uh, it just made it completely impossible to get these stories told. Well, I started to do some homework on the cost, what it would cost to produce the podcast, the way I was thinking it. And the concept was to do the interviews uh, and to produce it like a 30 for 30, where uh, you, uh, you're bringing other people into the story. You're not just interviewing one-on-one -on -one with one person, you're bringing others, and it's all pre-produced. Uh, so the uh, started to understand more and more of the different pieces of that, and it kind of came together in that, I think the board was kind of, they kind of looked at me, I think like the people looked at uh, Dennis and I when uh, <laughs> Thomas and Max Center. Yes. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, so the first two, I said, listen, I will produce the first two episodes myself because I realized this is even a question mark to me. Uh, so let me do the first two episodes. Uh, and so I chose two people 
Uh, one, again, chance and happenstance. Both of them happened to be in Vegas for the Las Vegas Invitational at a time, so I knew I could interview them. But, uh, you know, Mark was running it, and Lee was there because his son Adam was, uh, was wrestling. And that's during the NFR. So the uh, – but I, I wrestled with Lee, so I knew Lee very well. And I was coached with Mark, so I knew them both. So I said, guys, you're going to be the first two etched in stone. Uh, uh, you know, we're going to, we're eventually, the vision is to do stories on every distinguished member uh, and archive these stories and tell the, and, and share them with the wrestling world. Uh, because uh, yeah, I knew both of their stories were intriguing. But until I got into them, I really didn't know how intriguing they were. Uh, and that is, to me, what fans are going to appreciate most about Etched in Stone is uh, each of these two are three episodes. Uh, then we have yours with Dan Gable, which is very similar to these, the other two. You did it very similar to uh, the way, uh, actually, it's the same format. Exactly. So Etched, in, yeah. Etched in Stone is going to give wrestling fans an opportunity to look at a wrestler's perspective of stories. Uh, and as you listen to these, and we've we created a storybook for them too. Uh, Mark's storybook is about thirty-two pages. Lee's storybook is probably going to be fifty pages. All and it's going to include videos. So you, instead of uh, us telling you the story about his match with Dan Gable, you can see it. Uh, you can link onto it. Uh, instead of telling you the story about his match with the Russian in high school, we've got the match. So. It's a very interactive, very interesting way to hear about the uh, these legends. So the the uh, so Mark's um, Mark's interview. Uh, what Mark was is first, uh, Lee is second, and then the series continues with Dan Gable, which you produced, and then the the Smiths, which you're producing also. So that's the concept is. Uh, as we move forward, we're already, already working on the second season. Uh, this season, it's, it will launch the first episode next Tuesday. That'll be Torella. Uh, and they're, they're, they're somewhat sequenced by, well, they are. They're sequenced by chronologically. So mm -hmm. um, Mark's will, each of them will start off with, you know, how they got into it. So, it's so interesting. How many, how, many, how, many, how many times have you heard that a wrestler wasn't interested in wrestling he wanted to play basketball first well that's <laughs> yeah. both of these guys uh, they both were going to be basketball players but they ended up being wrestlers uh so you'll see the the first parts of their lives mostly through state then you get through college and international and then you'll it goes the third episode is really more about your, their career and wraps it up uh but uh, episode launches every week on tuesday uh marks is three episodes lee's three episodes uh, Dan's, I think it's two, two, uh, and then the Smiths. Uh, so that will go till I believe mid February, and we're now working with. Uh, in fact, if there are fans out there that have writing skills and are wrestlers, uh, Pat at LasVegasEvents.com, uh, give me a give me a, a jingle. Uh, it's really the to me what will make this series unique is the format in that it's affordable. So we are, we can tell all these stories that it is the, the storybook is going to bring this to life and that you'll be able to see and envision the, the, their history. 
but as you follow along uh, the uh, with their uh, stories, uh, I, can you imagine there's 200 now inductees into the National When we're done, 20 years from now with this series, what stories and what history we recorded? Mm, it's exciting. And you said something earlier that you said, you know, you never realized how involved some of these stories were. And man, I got to tell you, I could not agree more. You know, every time you start one of these, you have an outline, but then when you get in the interview, something comes up and then a connection's made and it just, you, all these stories really come full circle and it is exciting. And, you know, I'll never forget, I was interviewing Mark Torella and afterwards we were talking, he goes, you should talk to Pat Christensen. I think he's doing something similar. And sure enough, you called me and it's been, it's been an awesome partnership. And as you said, you're the, you know, the Smith documentary series, it would not even be happening if it were not for you. And I know we started that back in, I think maybe the first call we had was like June and it's going to go live in January. And I was just writing, uh, writing this morning on it for about four hours. So it's going to be exciting. And, you know, just to recap, Etched in Stone, you're taking the Hall of Fame members, telling their story in both a, a, a produced podcast, as well as the storybook magazine for people who prefer the written word. And it's coming out next Tuesday. And yeah, you correct me, Pat. The plan is, though, to keep it going. Will there be a break between season one and season two? For the, no. Okay. We're going to go right That's into it. That's why this next is, uh, we literally have, I think we have more than six already lined up. We just have to tie it all down. And we're giving it about eight producers, about three months to produce it. So, you know, between the, the producer lays out the script, he does the interviews, uh, he records it. We've even got a software program that makes it easy for the editor to mix all of this together, add transition, add music. Uh, so uh, there's a process in place that's going to allow, it may, it may not be, necessarily be a uh, wrestler. Uh, uh, Mike Finn with uh, Wynn Magazine is working on Lloyd Geezer, but it will be somebody that deeply understands that wrestler and has been in wrestling versus someone you know, from ESPN that is, you know, coming out to produce something for the first time. So that is what I'm probably most excited about is uh, wrestling fans, the, the fact that we get into technique a lot in these, you know, you, you it, it, it's such, a, it's so much, of a, it's such a bigger, deeper dive into their lives. It's such a good point about the, you know, I, about the technique and, you know, you watch The Last Dance, which to me is amazing. Maybe the best thing I've ever watched. But to a true basketball fan, they probably want to see a little bit more of the shooting and the technique and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, as we're producing these audio documentaries now, I'm always torn between what, how much do you put in, how much do you don't put in that's technical. But, I mean, obviously the, the main audience are wrestlers, um, which is good. But, you know, my hope is always that, you know, someone who's maybe never wrestled hears it and that catches them as well because these stories are you know, engr engrossing. Even if you're a sports fan, you know, some of my favorite 30 for 30s aren't even about combat sports. My favorite one is actually about a soccer story. Um, that's the beauty of these stories though, you know? You know, when you listen, let's say you're on the bubble, you're just, uh, you're kind of an outside wrestling fan and you start to hear about moves, you hear about Mark Torella and his banana splits or the guillotine. You gotta be, you gotta be a little bit curious about what those are. And as you follow up, they are as painful as they sound. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. I mean, yeah, same thing for, 
I was just writing episode two this morning and that's when John Smith discovers the low single. And it's like, you're writing about that. I'm hoping that if someone's listening to it, they're Googling, what is the low single, you know, and they're watching all these highlight clips. And, you know, I know, uh, Leroy Smith's wife, Lisa, she's going to be writing the copy to it. And so if you want to learn more after you listen, you go read that. So I think it's just a great, a great thing you're doing. And it's been a real honor to work with you and to know you. And I'm glad you could come on the show and, and share your story before it goes live next week. So this episode here, Pat, will go live on Monday. Um, give everyone you know, a day to get ready for the Etched in Stone series. Um, any last words, sir, before we let you get back to run in Las Vegas? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the launch. I think wrestling fans, especially wrestling fans, and that's what the series is, is created for, is uh, uh, to tell these stories about these legends. Um, so hopefully they tune in. I mean, they can, they can get it any other, in the same route they go with any other podcast. So I can do my little commercial bit there. Spotify. Tell uh, me. It's Etch and Stone. Yeah. But the, the Hall of Fame is going to have the main recording. So you can go to Hall of Fame uh, and, and get the recording there. USA Wrestling will have the recording. The, so the two partnerships were critical in this, uh, uh, the, uh, both the uh, Hall of Fame and, uh, and so when you, uh, you, when you look at it, these are really produced by the two of them. Uh, but you can get it at either of their websites or you can get it anywhere you normally listen to podcasts. And I'll be, uh, I'll be retweeting it like crazy. Um, I've listened to, uh, you know, some of the, the Lake Hemp and, and mostly all of Terrell and they're awesome. And so, you know, it's just, man, what a, what a treat that wrestling fans now have a, a custom 30 for 30 just for wrestling. Uh, that's what I, that's what I look at this as. So Pat Christensen, you are the man, sir. Thank you for your time. Last question as always. How did wrestling change your life, sir? Well, I think that's, the whole I conversation, but started that from the for the first. I, I, when I look back at moving to Vegas and the fact that you know you look back at not even getting to the state tournament, not even being seated, and then being offered, you know, coming out to Vegas didn't seem like a big deal to me. I was just going to be an assistant coach and go from there. But it was all wrestling. If it weren't for uh, my wrestling, what I was doing in wrestling. Dennis wasn't watching that NCAA finals match. I wouldn't be in Vegas. There you go. I mean, it's turning points. You know, it's crazy to look back and see where they're at now, but that was obviously one for you. And, and what you're doing with Etch and Stone is, is a turning point for me and a lot of the people listening. So folks, check in on Etched in Stone podcast. Uh, I'll be tweeting it. You can find it on USA Wrestling as well as the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Pat Christensen, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Take care. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. Take care, y'all.